again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Today, we continue our discussion on the unique needs of women in treatment and recovery. This, our final episode in the three-part series, focuses on the increased stigma that women face in treatment and recovery. Several years ago, I was listening to our then single state agency commissioner, Patricia Reamer, speak at Yale, where she made the clear delineation between stigma and discrimination, with stigma simply being the mindset while discrimination is stigma in action. It struck a chord with me, and I always remember that. So when we talk of discrimination, that's when people are driven to change. Just something worth keeping in mind. If in 1964, the Civil Rights Act that was passed, if they talked about the stigma of being a person of color, nothing would have changed when they could point to the action of discrimination, which was the real problem then changes occur. So that's just something to keep in mind. Several studies, including one as far back as 30 years ago, have shown that many women initiate the use of drugs as a way to self-medicate and address social pressors, which is what, how many people start, but that women are stigmatized by that same society for using drugs, and women who are mothers face even greater stigmatization. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in their latest revision in 2013 of the treatment and protocol 51, substance use treatment addressing the specific needs of women, reported that social stigma is a significant reason that women don't seek treatment services, and it also plays the same role when women are not able to complete treatment. Tanisha Grant, Director of Women's Services at Community Renewal Team in Hartford and member of the Board of Directors of the CCB, joins us once again. Welcome back to the podcast, Tanisha. Thanks for having me. You ready to get into this? Yes, let's go ahead and get started. All right. So let's start out with a pretty general question, kind of to get the conversation going. Uh, the role of stigma on those individuals with substance use disorders is well known and documented, and it comes from many sources. We recognize that uh, government legislation contributes to that. When we look at the Harrison Act of 1914, obvious racial overtones. Uh, that's a real good example of governmental uh, feeding into the stigma to treatment providers, family members and friends, and even to the substance using community. We recognize that there are it's a hierarchy based on what you use and how you use it. Generally, what are some of the overarching issues with stigma, and then add to that, what for our purposes today, what are some of the additional issues of stigma that women face? So pretty much um, having, let's see, with, with, with stigma, it presents as barriers for women that are to get into treatment, first of all. So that's, that's the big, the big piece of, um, of stigma and um, recovery with women. And so some of the areas where they face stigma um, are societal, um, societal expectations um, based on their, their role. So they, um, women are caregivers, naturally. Mm -hmm. um, and so they may have children that they have to take care of or, or other family members in general that they have to take care of. And so 
that is an issue for folks. Um, you have relationship problems where women may be scared to go into treatment because it may means severing ties with um, people that they are close with or partners, um, losing friendships when you go into treatment. And if those friends or your partner are using at the same time while you are, um, again, that's that's severing the relationship with them. Income is an is another big um, impact on on st- on um, stigma with women because they may not have enough money to or the type the health insurance that they need to be able to get into treatment. And programs have or have had staff that, um, for lack of a better word, have their own have their own biases towards women that are in recovery and treatment. And so that can also have an impact on whether or not if um, women get into treatment. And staff biases are something that I find uh, I take great interest in because it's across the board on different things. Um, but it's especially mm-hmm. important as we talk about how an individual and a woman enters treatment or or recovery if she doesn't go to a formal treatment uh, that there are those that are in the helping profession that may perceive uh, the role that you spoke of that, that she's not meeting that role and, and have a negative opinion of this individual simply for seeking help and trying to do the right thing when we look at- and then there's also that i was gonna say there's also that piece of the women also feeling shame and guilt about using anyway so they really don't want to ask for help because they're scared of how folks are going to perceive them i can see that being an important aspect as well uh, and thanks for mentioning that too when we look at tip 51 from samsa it's it, it's really a guide of best practices it doesn't meet the needs of every single individual because Obviously, people have different opinions and feelings about things, but it's really a general set of, of best practices. Um, well, you mentioned some. Uh, let's talk about some of the other issues related to social stigma that keep women from uh, uh, seeking services, namely the provider. What are some things that the provider does, uh, maybe unconsciously, it's just part of routine, that really limits opportunities for women to to get into treatment um, and be accepted and welcomed. So, we we talked a little bit about the biases, but just mm-hmm. the the program structure overall. So it may not be geared to to deal with issues that are um, specific to women. So, like healthcare issues that that women have, if the women have children and not being able to um, get ha- get a daycare center or mm-hmm. or a provider to ke- take care of the kid while they're coming into treatment, or problems with um, transportation programs that may not be set up to be able to provide that um, to the to the women that are trying to get into treatment. Um, if, if folks are if they're if she's pregnant, so again set up not set up to where they could realistically take care of of the um of the women that are, that are in need and then scared because of any liabilities that may be um that they may be responsible for if something happens to the woman or the child that's that would be under their care 
one of the things that I had seen regularly when I worked in treatment uh, and going back at least 10, 12 years uh, was that if if a woman was unable to finish a program, whether it be a, a partial hospitalization, day treatment or whatever, she was non-compliant. That was the word across the board. She was non-compliant. And although that's not actually the truth, mm-hmm. it was well accepted, um, partly, I think, so that agencies didn't have to change the way they did things to to make it more welcoming and make it so that these individuals that that women were more likely to be able to complete treatment. It was hard for agencies to take that on themselves and mm-hmm. say, we're part of the problem. Right. I think that's changing, but it certainly was a big, big issue um, back then. You know, And if a woman is able to get in and go into treatment or go through her intake and start in the program, is that program designed to let her be successful? And in many cases, we know the answer was no. Right. Rigid schedules. They don't take into account what you said, transportation, child care issues and things like that. Um, when you look at it, you know, with a 5000 foot view, you can see all the problems. It was just amazing how hard it was for people to see those problems when they were kind of in a routine of working. Yeah. And I think that for the, for the most part, when doing that, so part of it is 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 program structure, but then there's also systems in place too that programs have to follow um, those guidelines in order to be reimbursed for the services that they're that they're providing. Right. So I could see I could I can see why um, at times things are not as flexible as they should be, but that's where we have advocates that need to come in and speak to um, speak to policymakers um, and corporations that are putting in this barrier for women to be able to access treatment at on the, at the level that they are needed to have the treatment. And I think part of that is is having people, uh, I would say, just having women as decision makers and those things that they can understand. Uh, and have a better view of of the issues that people entering treatment would have. Mm-hmm. You know, we know the importance of the therapeutic relationship. Um, you know, it's it's been found to be the most important thing that we can influence when working with somebody. And what role does stigma play for women who have difficulty forming that therapeutic alliance with the person that they're working with? Um, how does that become an issue for for both the provider, the the, the clinician, and the the woman that they're taking care of? So I don't know if you recall it. Our last um, session we talked about um, setting clear expectations for for the woman that we serve um, is is paramount, and then sticking to what it is that we say that we're going to do and a level of service that we're going to be that we're going to be providing. But also realizing that the same approaches that you would um, use when working with a male client is not going to work with a with a female client. So in terms of the being confrontational when there's a discrepancy in what they're saying versus what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to come at it in a way that's more empathetic and listening and, and helping them to formulate decisions on their own. Um, and just, just having 
like sessions where they are empowered to be able to make choices for themselves. Being able to be involved in the treatment planning is very important um, and gaining their their trust and their buy-in to their being able to succeed in treatment and just being able to, to talk and be understanding with them about the issues that they face and realize that there are some policy and procedures that we have that may not be best suited for women and being able to advocate on behalf of the person that you're working with to your administrators um, to say, hey, this isn't working and this is this is how this is creating a negative impact. And being able to, another thing would be being able to um, celebrate those successes that the women have helps to build their self-esteem as well. And those those are all important in, in building those relationships and keeping women to keep to keep going forward, seeing those, um, seeing those little successes and, um, helping them to understand, you know, like this is a process. It's not overnight. You didn't get here in one day. So this is something that we can work through together. And over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen just in general kind of a shying away from that confrontational type of, of treatment. Although there are some that still do that. We know that it's really not that effective for most. Certainly, uh, you have to take into consideration gender in the way that that's done. And what you're describing is really what is really truly um, informed consent on treatment. Let them know everybody knows exactly what's expected um, and that you deliver what what you promise. And there are things you're going to have to give bad news. But if they know you're going to have to mm-hmm. give bad news, you're just going to be honest. It's I think it's well accepted. Do you think that fear of contact with DCF, with the judicial system, if they have any involvement in things like that, uh, create fear for a woman that that would want to enter treatment? Of of course it does, because for, for even if we say like the person is is pregnant, there's fear of legal consequences um, for her of of her um, using while she's pregnant, the baby being born with mm-hmm. drug, drugs, or alcohol in her system. Um, so yes, the child being removed. So again, that, that goes to say that she isn't doing what she should as a mom and she's failed at this. Um, and how many times has she failed at doing certain things in her life or where's um, bad relationships or having, um, trauma in, in, from a young, at an early age. And so all of that playing inside of, of her head. And then now there's a possibility that I can have my child removed. Of course, that's, that's really, you know, um, a way for a, re- a reason why a woman wouldn't want to admit to me needing help, especially if the person that you're working with is a mandated reporter and has to say, hey, there's a possibility um, that she may be getting high around her children or she's getting high while she's pregnant. Um, and so now DCF is involved and the, and the child can can be taken away. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's a real fear and it is something that does 
that does happen, um, unfortunately. But I, I see that in each, at least in each of the regions here in CT, we have um, at least a program where women can um, can go with their children. Now, I'm quite sure that I'm I'm not like 100% sure on each of these programs. I'm gonna just put that out there, but there probably is a limit to how many children you can bring into the program. I would say whatever the age ranges of the children may also um, be can, can present as a barrier depending on the age um, of the children. But having more programs where women can bring um, more residential treatment programs if the woman needs inpatient or residential to be able to bring their children with them so that that barrier of losing my children um, isn't there for them or wondering who's going to take care of my child while I go and get um, myself taken care of. One of the most powerful things I learned many years ago from actually a colleague of ours on the board, Jen uh, Valvo, when we worked together, was uh, even if DCF had referred someone to our provider, um, they're not required to sign a release for DCF, if they don't want us to continue to speak to DCF, that's their choice. And we have to respect that. And then we would be honest and say, there are things that I have to report no matter what. Uh, But if you don't want me to talk to them, uh, I won't. Or if you do want me to talk to them, you can limit what I will tell them. Mm -hmm. You have that choice. Um, And I think that that um, was became somewhat empowering for people that we could give urine results. We would never talk about what they talked about unless there was danger involved, but it was saying, no, you don't have to even and DCF would call and I referred so-and-so and they don't dictate treatment. The treatment provider. Does. Right. Just like we don't right. dictate what child protective services. They don't, if, if somebody doesn't want us to talk to them, you know, that's fine. And I'll respect that. I, they're, just not, they're not there, in my opinion, to, to deal with DCF. They're there for a different reason for themselves. Um, and it, it frustrated mm-hmm. a lot of child protective workers, but uh, I, that wasn't my concern. Um, it's also a double-edged sword because when somebody's doing really well, I wouldn't be able to report that to DCF without their permission either. Uh, but when you put right. all that stuff uh, and let someone let a woman make a, an informed decision. Um, you know, you start. That's a good start. That's a good thing to have for the therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned pregnancy, and and when that gets thrown into the mix, the issues that a woman faces are magnified exponentially. Um, can you talk about some of those things that you mentioned? A few, but when a woman is pregnant and enters treatment, what are some of the things that she's likely to face um, from kind of an uninformed provider? Well, again, releasing, like you said, releasing information when when she shouldn't. Um, but then you have have people that look at her at a look at her a certain kind of way because she's pregnant. Like you why are you doing this? Um, to your child, you, 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 the child has um, a right to be born without drugs or alcohol. 
in their sim in their system. And so just being able to not keep your attitude and your biases in checked have a negative impact on whether or not if she'll if she'll stay in treatment. So whatever for, for whatever reason is that she's she's there, she's there because she wants to help herself. She wants to do good for her baby. She wants a healthy baby to be born. And so that and it and it's in a in its own is motivation enough for a woman to go ahead and, and to get treatment while she's while she's pregnant. So let's say if she if she continues using um, while she's pregnant. Yes, I, I, I understand that we have to, you know what I'm saying, um, let the powers be with, in ear mm-hmm. quotes. Um, know that this is um that this is that this is occurring and that sh- there's a child that's gonna be impacted at um because of her of her, her drug use. But if we provide um that empowering and strength-based care to them while they're pregnant, the likelihood of them continuing on to treatment after they give birth is greater than if we don't do it. There have been significant uh, um, things that have kind of helped as we've come along with. Um, You're hearing less providers say that a child is born addicted. A child is not born addicted. When we think of addicted, we think of a set of behaviors. A child is born dependent on whatever the Mm -hmm. substance is. Uh, And I think language is very stigmatizing in the way we word things um, when we talk about or to individuals uh, becomes a a bit of an issue themselves. one thing that I can tell you is that I know that these additional issues of stigma related to pregnant women, they're usually based on somebody's opinion and not mm-hmm. based on anything factual. Um, and from a governmental standpoint, there's been some relief on this that's really significant um, that in the past couple of years, the Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey had ruled against that state's child protective services organization in an alleged child abuse case. They wanted to take a child uh, after it was born, saying that the mother had abused the child by using methadone to support her recovery um, while she was pregnant. And the court used scientific evidence that was out there and said, this is absolutely not the case. She is not uh, harming her child. Um, you know, there are some issues with with child born dependent on methadone, but they're dealt with in the hospital and it's not child abuse. I thought that a state coming and saying that against the child protective services was a huge factor. And I have to give a big, mm-hmm. a, a big round of applause to my, uh, my colleague at, uh, at DCF, Mary Painter, who's in charge of substance abuse services for, for DCF here in Connecticut. Um, they actually contracted with the CCB to have us go into 12 of their regional offices and do uh, a training on medication assisted treatment for the social workers, because a lot of them were very uninformed, uh, telling them they had to get off methadone or they couldn't use Suboxone. Uh, So we went to 12 of their regions so that we could give these individuals a better understanding of the truth. And they didn't rely on interagency gossip and, and that kind of stuff. Like I said, that, that, that really goes to, to my colleague, Mary Painter. I have to uh, 
pat her on the back on that because that that's a huge change for that organization. In the past, these stigmatizing behaviors, really discriminatory behaviors, I think I should call them, mm -hmm. came from the industry's conventional view of treatment. Like you said before, with childcare and things of the like, with transportation, general availability during normal treatment hours. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, these were excluded as legitimate barriers to treatment or recovery services for women because they were not what men experienced. The canned response among providers, if she's not compliant, she's not ready, really took the place of looking at the barriers and addressing them. And you had, had mentioned that earlier, uh, very clearly. Now that we're nearing the third decade of the 21st century, think about that for a second. <laughs> um, really, what changes have we seen? And you mentioned some, but where do you see us going in the future to be more effective? Um, I've... I see staff being being better trained, for one, and um, like you said earlier, the language and in, in using proper terminology when you're interacting with folks. Um, but program structures are going to um, have to change to be able to to um, to help women succeed at being successful in their in their recovery. Um, Meaning programs that you that you that are offered to the women are more gender specific um, programming that's being offered there. Looking at things in a um, from an integrated um, perspective, so having um, healthcare providers um, that are able to deal with certain issues. So almost like it's like a one stop shop, so the person can be able to go there for their treatment. And also for healthcare needs, so which we've seen some of our some of the um, agencies that we have here in CT already, and then increased um, in in residential programs that allow women to have more interaction with their children or have their children on board with them. Um, that's definitely something that would that would have to be I, I could see on the rise. Um, I know like at CRT, we, we help provide transportation for individuals that need to come into treatment for our program. So there isn't um, that transportation piece that's a, that's a barrier for women. So just being able to structure, your, structure the program the right way so that all of those barriers that the women face into getting into treatment is, is, is lessened or... It's not the air doesn't present as a problem for her. Um, and then including her family into, into treatment as much as she would want them to be involved as well is, 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 is huge. Now, then there's also this other piece, um, like I said, with, with advocates um, being able to, to, to lobby with our um, legislators on policy and laws that need to change so that corporations aren't or insurance companies aren't allowed to to dictate certain certain things that can have a negative impact on um, women that they may not they may not realize and having them involved as stakeholders and being able to say hey this may work but have you thought about this um, but just having having the key people on board and making those um, 
those systemic changes that that could impact them. And, and those women that, that choose to enter treatment or enter recovery uh, need to be treated as stakeholders, that their opinions matter yes. and their, their experiences and that it's not just lip service. So I think that that's, that's really important. And I know that when you mentioned residential, I know there's a few the, uh, of those programs that allow women to be there with their children. I know Community Health Resources has one out in Putnam, and I know that the connection has uh, has a couple throughout the state. I don't know of any others, and that's certainly not a complete list, but we could never have enough of those because of the work that never they do. Enough. The work that they do it is incredible. Uh, you know, now that we're in the age of COVID, uh, and all the paradigm-shifting ways of provided services have increased because of it. Uh, they're both positive and, and negative consequences that have been created. As we see more and more virtual services, can you talk about the barriers that have been lessened, but also can you talk and mention some of those that have been increased because of virtual services? So, um access for one. I'm going to say it's both, there's a negative piece in 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 the positive piece to it, right? So um, yeah, they can't get into the office to come and see you. So pretty much you can reach more people that way being able to, um, to, to reach them through virtual services. However, if they are low income, um, they may not be able to have the internet capabilities to be able to access your services that are online. Or if they're doing it over the phone, they may not have enough minutes to be able to, to be able to, to be able to receive those services. So while on the, on the surface, it probably was, was, it seemed to be a really great idea, but that's also a piece of it. Then technology, right? If you don't have a computer, how are you going to be able to do it? And they're like, oh, you have a smartphone. Um, you could be able to do it. But if you don't even know how to use that, how how are you going to be able to, to get those um those services? So I just think that the idea of it and how we've been doing things, um, if you have access to it, it's helpful in a sense to to providers to be able to do what it is that they 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 need to do and to provide care, but it um, doesn't also always translate over well to to the folks that we that we serve. And that's kind of the stuff that was in my head when I asked the question. It is everything is a double edged sword. It's better, but it's worse. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there an, it would would you say that there may be some trepidation on a, a woman's part? to do these virtual services from their home because fear of being judged based on a living environment and things like that. Is that feasible to say? That is feasible to say. Um, fear, fear of being judged that they haven't really talked to their family about the extent of what it is that they're going through. But also, if you're doing it, like you can look into my, you can see whatever my background is. So seeing how that person that person's living, their children may be running around and, 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 and making a lot of noise. So they can't really fully concentrate on what it is that you guys are, you guys are working on because there's a lot going on in the background. So they're, they're really distracted 
or it may be that the computer connection is in the same room as the living room. And so the children are watching TV at the same time mom is trying to 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 do her um her treatment. So there isn't that level of confidentiality there um, to be able to talk about things that are really that are really um going on because there isn't that, that confidentiality right. piece there. Um, and I would yeah. also guess that uh, women get judged for things that are normal in a household. If you've got a couple of kids, they run around. You know, they make noise, mm-hmm. they drop things, they scream at each other. Mom, he did it, she did it. You know, all of those normal things we laugh about when we're talking to our friends and family are often judged negatively right. when we're dealing, when it's just normal everyday stuff. Um, and I think that it gets looked at different, mm-hmm. uh, under a different lens. And that's incredibly unfair. And, but I think it's done unconsciously. I don't think someone actually thinks. Um, but when they think, oh, what about that time my kid fell down and was screaming, I'm glad there was no one here. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it's happened to any of us that have kids. I think I, I found that um, if you, if your staff are pretty much in the same kind of situation where they have their kids <laughs> running around as well, they are less likely to be um, judgmental over, um over seeing the seeing the kids walking around behind the person and, or making noise in the background, but and, and that's not to say that if they don't if if, if the clinician doesn't have children that they're not um, that they're being that they are being judgmental. So, because I don't want that to come off as that's not what I'm saying, but it's the perception of the female on how the clinician is perceiving them by seeing everything that's going on in the background that impacts um, the treatment they're getting. Or if the young woman is simply tired from being a parent and parenting will often say she's disinterested in treatment and that's completely inaccurate. It's at that moment in time, she may just be tired, you know, and we, Mm -hmm. we and it's important that we, we look at that through, uh, a human lens that yeah that could happen to us or if the kids are yelling and running around and then they stop simply asking how the heck did you do that because i mm-hmm. could use that yeah. and, and just normalizing that behavior um i just there's just so much that we can do just based on perception to change these things mm-hmm. um tisha i really thank you for all your uh time over the past three weeks um, given the gravity of the need for gender specific services, what you have shared really can help all of us change the way we look at and the way we deliver our services. It's really been my pleasure to have these discussions. I can't thank you enough. And um, I hope that you found this time fruitful as well. I did. And um, thank you for having me. Um, even though we had a storm the other day in our system, <laughs> a little spotty, but... <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm recording from a different place because of the storm. I don't have power. Um, I'm glad that you do um, and some of my friends do. But, uh, again, thanks for all your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. All righty. Have a good day. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. Again, I'd like to thank Tanisha for taking the time out of her busy schedule to talk to us and really help develop 
uh, this important series. Join us next time for the first of two episodes on the needs of transgender individuals in treatment and recovery with expert Dr. Fred Dombrowski from the University of Bridgeport. The expected release date for that is uh, Tuesday, August 17th. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listened. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, on iTunes, or on your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.